Hey folks, welcome to Josh's Worst Nightmare Oddcast, presented by Denver Horror Collective. I am your host, Josh Schlossberg, surveying the dark landscape of biological horror fiction. For this episode, we are being graced with the presence of Daniel J. Volpe. Daniel is an author of extreme horror and splatterpunk. His love for horror started at a young age when his grandfather unwittingly rented him A Nightmare on Elm Street. Daniel has published with D&T Publishing, Potter's Grove, The Evil Cookie Publishing, and self-published. His novel, Left to You, and novella, Talia, were nominated for the 2022 Splatterpunk Awards. And Daniel and I, we share a publisher, so my novella, Melina, came out through D&T Publishing. And so we're Eskimo brothers in that regard. So uh, for folks who don't know, or for folks who do, on Josh's Worst Nightmare, I invite on horror authors to talk about an aspect of biological horror, which I define as living creatures, vital processes relevant to their writing. This episode, we are talking about drugs. And for the celebration, I asked Daniel to, to be on at least one drug when he, did you end up doing that or was that not able to happen for you? I am on a combination of different kind of uh, ED medications right now. So I have just, a, I, I'm not wearing pants. I just have a sheet over me. Uh, for those of you, you guys aren't seeing the video, but, uh, but Josh can see that I only have a, uh, a sheet from the waist down. I can see the sheet. It's making me mildly uncomfortable, but we're just going to power through. Luckily, the drugs that I took are hallucinogens. So it kind of, it dulls everything and, and it evens <laughs> out. So it's all fine. But yeah, I, I definitely appreciate you coming on, Daniel. And what does the topic of drugs mean to you personally? And how does that tie into your horror fiction? Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for, for bringing me on. I, I do appreciate, you know, I, I always love talking with uh, like-minded authors and especially we can talk about a topic such as, as drugs. Um, so for me, drugs in, in fiction you know, they have, there's a lot of undertones and a lot of meanings in it. And for me, my first novella that I put out, Billy Silver, um, drugs and alcohol are a play a pivotal role in, in that story. And so that Billy is a, he's a heroin addict and he's, he's a bad man. He's bad in general. And the drugs and the alcohol kind of just amplify that as so in reality with people, when you see people that are, have addictions to drugs or alcohol, you know, it, it tends to amplify their, the negative things in their, in their life. And in, in my story with Billy Silver, it's the same way. He's addicted mainly to alcohol and heroin. And he ends up, um, he ends up pretty much trading one addiction for another with, through a, a cryptic tattoo that he gets from a woman, Talia, who, if, you know, as if you guys have ever read any of my other stuff, Talia is a, is one of my reoccurring characters. She ends up giving him a, a tattoo and this tattoo ends up replacing his addiction uh, of substances with pain and self-mutilation and uh, violence. So, you know, drugs, they, they definitely they definitely play a role in, in my fiction. And I've definitely seen it in other stuff as well. Fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. So heroin, I've not personally done heroin and you don't have to admit anything that might get law enforcement involved but my understanding and those i've seen who have been addicted to that well first of all they're not very fun to be around let's just start 
with that. But obviously, they're having a good time to a certain degree. But in your fiction, would you say that you you try to paint a realistic picture in terms of there's good and bad to everything? Or do you kind of do like a dare, you know, anti-drug message? How do you how do you play with that? Um, with Billy Silver, I, I kind of I just did a lot of research. Uh, there was a book that I read years ago called Dreamland by Sam Quinones, and it really rep, it really shows the um, the opioid crisis in America, mainly Middle America, like the Midwestern states, uh, Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, and from addicts that I've talked to and ones I've seen interviews on, they, they do they start off like you said in in um, enjoying it. You know, it seems like it's a recreational drug. It's something that kind of dulls their pain. And people that I've seen, and I've talked to say that in the beginning, the pleasure threshold and the pleasure level is very high and the pain is very low. And as they continue to take the opiate, the pleasure starts to sink and the pain starts to rise until they get to a point where the pain is on the higher threshold and the, and the pleasure is very low. And I kind of picked up Billy Silver at that point, Billy and his girlfriend, Jeannie, were at that point in their addiction where the pain was very high. And, and then the story opens up with, with Billy shooting up and he's in a dirty apartment. And, um, you know, Jeannie is starting to feel the, the withdrawal effects. Billy is not because he steals the last bag of heroin. And I start to really talk about that withdrawal effects and how it affects people. And you see the, the depths that Jeannie and Billy are willing to sink in order to maintain their high and, mm. you know, just through research and stuff. I've, I've seen that and it's, it's, you know, it's frightening and it's, it's sad for these people that are addicted to this. Yeah. Well, I guess that's why they call it chasing the dragon. Cause you're always chasing that next high, right? It's not yeah. like, cool. This is awesome. Like certain substances, it seems like certain individuals are able to like, yeah, I get high once in a while. I drink beer. It's not like, oh, I, now I need to have 19 beers i mean some people alcoholics do get that way but it seems like those very powerful potent drugs it's just it's never enough for maybe for addicts right because there probably are like to be realistic about things come from a journalistic perspective probably there are some people who can do certain drugs here and there and it's probably fine but do you think that there's maybe a difference for those who have a, a predisposition towards addiction yeah, I'm sure it's like any anybody can say that anybody that has a predisposition towards anything. There are people that are gamble or have gambling addictions. Uh, my wife and I recently just went to a, a small casino not far from us, and we went in with you know I think we spent like eighty dollars. We played for a little bit. We were up. We were down, and we left. We had dinner. We had drinks. We went back to the hotel room and, and enjoyed the night. But you could see there were people that were sitting there. Um, just sitting at the machines and I, I watched an, an older guy sitting there and he's just feeding hundred dollar bills into that machine. And here I am playing with pennies and just, you know, hitting my button, sipping a drink. And he's over there furiously tapping away in the screen and he'd run out and feed another hundred dollars in. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe that was lottery money. Maybe it was something he had, you know, maybe he's rich and he could blow that money, but um, he did definitely seem like he was kind of stressed out. And, you know, I don't have, thankfully, an addictive personality, but I could definitely understand people that do and how they do have this addiction, whether it's to substances or, you know, gambling or anything, you know, nefarious like that as well. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. And it's true. Some of us can do stuff and it's fine. Other people should probably never touch certain things. And we all have different 
weaknesses. I mean, in terms of addiction, yeah, luckily I don't have an addictive personality in that way, but I am addicted to like constantly thinking, like I'm always off in my head. I'm like, just be present for a few seconds. I meditate to try to get that way. So that's an addiction. It can be argued it's it's not as harmful or maybe it's, it's more harmful, but knowing what your predispositions are, I think are, are central to this. So I had a friend in college and he's still a, a friend, although I haven't heard from him for a few years. I just, I, for some reason, just assume he died in the pandemic. It's just, it just seems like he's something he'd do, but he was a friend of mine in college. And, you know, so we we're big potheads. Um, and so in, in theory, I'm not admitting to anything, but um, in this story that I'm writing, that's fictional, but he used a lot of weed. So he would be like, he would smoke weed, like an eighth would be gone in like a day. Whereas other folks I know, like, I'm going to take a little bit here and there. That was his personality. He would do the same with mushrooms. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to once a, once on a full moon, I'm going to take a little bit. He's like, I'm going to take like a quarter every week. And then he started getting into MDMA. So really getting into ecstasy and stuff like that, always doing it. But it was interesting is he always sort of came back to who he was. And then he started doing meth. And at that point, like, it was like, he wasn't the same person anymore. So what are you, what are your, uh, are you on meth right now, Daniel? No, no, I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm far too, um, uh, too uh, overweight for meth. I think if I was on <laughs> meth, I'd be a little skinnier, but, uh, no, no meth, no meth. I, uh, I will have the occasional, the occasional alcohol beverage here and there, but, uh, that's, it's pretty much all of my vices. Sure. I'm, yeah. I'm boring. Yeah. And my friend, he wouldn't drink that much, but he would do all those things. But for me, that was the the cautionary tale. And he just had that addictive personality. He was always doing, he always needed the next thing and the next thing. And I started to see his personality almost fade away. And I, I did see him maybe 10 years ago. And I mean, he was, he's had other psychological issues as well, but it's, yeah, it's not a, a great example of how one can live with using substances and turn out. Okay. There, there probably are people who can, um, one one thing that ties into fiction kind of so alistair crowley black magic guy he wrote a book called diary of a drug fiend and an interesting thing he the one thing i took away from the the book in terms of maybe cravings in general because i'm not much of a a, a drug user was his characters i can't remember now if it was nonfiction or fiction actually but anyway the characters were on all sorts of substances. I think heroin were trying to get off it. And the advice they were given was, listen, if you feel that really strong craving and hunger to do heroin or jerk off, whatever your thing is, go ahead and do it. Eat cookies, eat a bag of cookies. But what you shouldn't do is just every day develop the habit of like, well, it's every, every night I eat like 19 cookies, you know, it's, so it was a very interesting thing of like, it's okay to give into your cravings when they're there, because you might not be able to say no all the time. That'll build up. So when you really want it, go ahead and do it, but just make sure you're not just saying, I'm bored. I guess I'm going to, you know, shoot up or something like that. What, what do you think about that concept? It's actually really interesting because I find that people do that a lot with, um, with food. And I know I was, I was that kind of person where every night for dinner, I'd have one can of soda. I'd take it. And even if I didn't want it, that was just my wife knew. 
kids knew like, all right, we're setting the table. We're getting drinks out. All right, daddy's going to have a can of Coke, right? Set it down. And there were some nights I'm like, I really don't, I really don't want this, but it's kind of just a routine and a habit. And then you kind of, you kind of realize like, man, there's a, I don't really want this tonight. Like I'd be more, I'd be happier with just a glass of water. And then after a while, I'm like, I really don't even, I don't want this at all. And now I can't even tell you the last time I've had soda and it's not really a conscious decision. I'm just like, I'd rather just have water or if I'm going to save, let's say my, my calories, or whatever, I'm like, oh, I don't want to have this. I'm going to just, uh, you know, maybe I want to have a couple beers tonight. So I'm not going to drink any soda for the day. And, you know, I'll replace those calories, empty calories with a couple beers. So it's the same thing with ice cream. Um, I have uh, one of my sister-in-laws. She just recently said that, you know, she's going on a diet and she's like, I have to stop eating ice cream every night. And my, my wife was like, you eat ice cream every night? She's like, yeah, it's just kind of a habit. The kids go to bed. I get a small bowl of ice cream. I sit down to, uh, on the couch and I, I watch TV for an hour and I go to bed. So I definitely think forming that habit. Whereas if I want, want a soda, like I'm at the movies, and I'm like, you know what? I want a big ass thing of popcorn and I want a soda. It'll really hit the spot. I will. Like you said, I'll go for it that time. Say, so, okay, I had it. I got over the craving that I had and, and I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah. Well, that seems like you intuitively kind of took that on because I personally don't find complete abstention from something that I like to be really the best way. I mean, personally, I've never done Coke because, well, first of all, I don't want to be all amped up. I'm kind of already like very intense person, but part of me is like, well, I'm, I'm going to just never do Coke. Okay. But for other things that I do, yeah. Like ice cream or whatever, if I'm really thinking, I keep thinking about ice cream, I'm going to eat some damn ice cream. Like what, what's the big deal? But yeah, I think the issue with drugs is like, it's not really the drugs. I mean, it is and it isn't like these are powerful substances. They can be addictive substances. They can be awesome or, or horrible, but it's like how our relationship to them and in our culture of abstention or illegality, we never really get to develop that, that healthy way of doing it. It's kind of like how in, and this may be a myth, but I'll just go with it. How in Europe kids, will maybe have a glass of wine when they're 13 at the table. It's not a big deal. And so they're a lot less likely to binge drink the way we do in the US. Like somebody like me it was so hard to get a hold of alcohol when I was a, a teen, then finally got a bottle of whiskey. I drank so much of it, I get alcohol poisoning basically because I didn't know how to do it. Whereas if you know I had European parents, they'd be like, oh, you know, you sip a little here. And once you have two drinks at your weight, you stop. I didn't have that education. It was just no drinking, right? Yeah. And my, my grandmother's actually an Italian immigrant. And, um, and she did. She grew up drinking wine. And, you know, even when she, you know, came to the United States, it was still so normal for them because in Italy, that's what they did. You know, they had dinner or whatever, whatever meal they're having, they had, they had wine. And even as a little kid, she drank wine. I'm sure she wasn't getting shit-faced drunk, but you know, that was what they had for dinner. So maybe hers was maybe a little watered down, but it was, it was always normal for them to drink wine as, you know, what we would consider children. Yep. I mean, this was in probably the, she's probably the 1930s before they came over here. So it's normal for them. Yeah. And can be argued that it's fairly healthy, although there is, I don't know, I was in Ireland years ago and I don't like to feed into stereotypes, but there was a lot, there was a lot of binge drinking going on in Ireland. So uh, I don't know if that I don't know if my theory always works out, but maybe Italy has a has a more I don't know maybe it's wine versus beer. I don't I don't know the answer to that, but <laughs> could be. So horror fiction and drugs. So like, do you do you feel like that's 
it's kind of a good match, right? Like, like it's, we're allowed to, in theory and horror, talk about things that are typically not as uh, palatable in quote, mainstream fiction, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, drugs, like you said, they can be recreational for some people and this can be fun. But I think for a lot of instances, especially the hard drugs that crack, heroin, meth, they turn into true life horrors. And for, for a lot of people, I mean, you just have to turn on the news or, or open a newspaper and you can see that there's a lot of people that, you know, die from um, some of these things. And even just look at um, like naloxone and Narcan, you know, that's the anti-overdose drug for opiates. I mean, there's, you know, kids in school know about that stuff. If there wasn't a problem with opioids, we wouldn't have the need for people to be getting trained on opioid anti-overdose um, medication. So I think hard drugs especially and horror fiction go hand in hand just because they can be they can be horrible for some people yeah yeah and i think there's also a lot of parallels i'm trying to look at my bookcase because i have a book called fiend that was written uh a while ago by i believe a colorado author i i might have put it in my boxes because my bookcase here is small but um he kind of combined I believe it was opiates or heroin with the zombie phenomenon. And he did it pretty, pretty darn well. So, you know, there can be that whole, um, the parables we use in, in horror. And then yeah. also uh, skull crack city by Jeremy Robert Johnson. He, he wrote a horror story and I, I read it a long time ago, so I don't remember the details, but there's definitely a, a drug involved and I've incorporated stuff as well. I feel like, I don't know if I've ever written any long fiction that didn't incorporate drugs in some way. It just seems like, a, I mean, sometimes it's a, a crutch, right? I've, I've definitely mm -hmm. done things where like, if you want to play around with like, is this horror thing really happening or are they just on psychedelics? That's kind of a way you can, you can screw with that. Yeah, you, absolutely. Even prescription medication. I have a short story that's coming up in, um, in visceral two that I, that I wrote, co-wrote with Patrick C Harrison, the third, uh, it's coming out through death's head press. And one of the stories is about prescription medication and certain things that it can affect your body with and things that can make you do. And, you know, there's so many prescription medications out there and, you know, you can go into the whole big pharma thing and the FDA and doctors and whatnot, but there's a lot of prescription medications out there. And a lot of them, when you listen to the side effects, you know, you see people on the commercials having a grand old time, and then some of the side effects are like anal bleeding or fucking convulsions and fits. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound that good. Um, so maybe I'll just deal with my ailments. But obviously, there are certain things you have to take that, you know, are going to keep you healthy and, and safe. But certain medications, you see some of the side effects. And you're like, damn, that's uh, I think I'd rather this might be sick than <laughs> take some of yeah. this stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty wary of prescription drugs. I take as as few as possible. And yeah, I think. I'm surprised I haven't in my biological horror, I tend to write about like anxieties and then like physical things that go wrong. The side effects thing is, yeah, there's, there's so many directions you can go with that. I may have to incorporate that into something. So yeah, a there's, a, there's a lot of that stuff. A lot, a lot of those side effects and they're uh, some of them are not, not so good. Yeah. Anal bleeding. That's mm -hmm. I'm, I haven't written anything about that. I've it's a whole, 
that's a, that's a whole bunch of lost opportunities. Right? Yeah. Uh, pink, pink sock. You'll start prolapsing, whatever. And oof, that's starting to get into the areas in which that I'm not comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is not, ugh, that's definitely not something I want to write about. But uh, <laughs> speaking of drugs and alcohol though, what do you feel about writing while on substances? Is that something you like to do? Um, I'm not saying it's something I regularly will do, but there, there have been nights where, you know, uh, the family's asleep and I'll break out a nice bottle, not even a nice bottle, like a shitty bottle of bourbon <laughs> and some beers and, and I'll sit down at the computer and I'll just write. It's not something that I need to, to write on, sure. um, but I have been, I have been drunk before writing and, uh, you know, some days I wake up next, next morning and I'm like, that was pretty good. You know, some days I'm like, I don't know what the fuck any of this means. I'm gonna have to rewrite this, but, um, I've done it. I enjoy it. It kind of, kind of, you know, lubes the wheels a little bit, but that's, that's really about the only substance I've taken to write with or writing on. Yeah. I've, I'm, I tend to be wary just cause I don't want to start being dependent. Like, Oh, I have to be in this state of mind in order to write. I've definitely written on, you know, alcohol, <laughs> green tea, but in the past, cause I currently do not in imbibe, but I've come up with a lot of story ideas while on edibles because, but mostly it's because I'm, when I'm hiking, I'm out hiking, I'm thinking of story ideas. So, but I would always be eating edibles and I would be like, Oh, this is where I'm getting maybe some of the creativity. Then I stopped eating edibles and then the ideas came just the same. I realized it was the walking for me. It was just yeah. moving my body. I get that driving. You know, I'll have a yeah. lot of ideas will hit me driving. And I don't know if it's because I'm so hyper-focused, I'm not crashing or just watching everybody else. And just my brain is just firing on all cylinders because I'm constantly, I'm using all my senses to to really pay attention to everything. And then an idea will just like hit me. I'm like, oh shit, that's how I need to finish that book or that story. And I'm like, all right, I got to pull over real quick and I'll jot down a note in my phone and um, and I'll be good. But a lot of my writing is done in the morning. So I don't think it would be really smart to get shit-faced drunk every morning, right? So <laughs> That that drinking and writing is like a definitely once every couple months kind of don't thing. get in the car and then drink so you can get your yeah. ideas and, and then yeah. write yep. all that would yeah, be no. nice. None of that. But yeah, I think the idea, at least in my mind, is when your conscious brain is occupied with some other task, all the other stuff can go on and the background tasks can happen. And so that sets our unconscious mind free to create, perhaps. And not to mention when you're hiking, you're, you are using, there are chemicals going through your body, different endorphins, you know, certain things, your, the exertion from the physical exercise, the fresh air, just all the different things that are being dumped into your body. So they are a chemical, there is a chemical release going on, which is obviously maybe helping you relax. And then, like you said, opening up that, that third eye to start getting all the ideas coming in. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's probably true as well. All I know is that I have tried editing while high on weed in the past and what's interesting is i'm very good at it but i'm like too good at it like i get down to like every nuance of the word to the point where like i'm actually looking at like the shapes of the letters <laughs> and seeing how if they're pretty enough to be in the sentence and i was like okay this is too much don't do yeah. this anymore yeah. And that's the age old topic of uh, editing and how far, how far are you going to edit before you release it? And before you're like, all right, I'm done with this. Let me send it off to the actual editor. And, you know, because there are people that edit their books for 10 years and like, all right, it's finally, it's perfect. And then they'll publish it. And the first page will be a typo. 
Yeah. And you're like, God damn it. You know, like it's fucking so all this time and now it's screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely don't go to that extent. Although I, I definitely think I'm a better editor than writer, like even of my own stuff. Like I, my first drafts are trash and then I go through and, and do it, but yeah, not, not too many times, but it was funny for the latest anthology, the Jewish book of horror. So the, the preface, all that was good. The first story did have a typo in like the third sentence. I'm like, motherfucker. I read through this 15 times. I sent it back to the author. I sent it through two other people. How did we, it was, it was a weird kind of typo, but uh, yeah, it's, you, you stop seeing things after a while, but it, it also teaches you just like, sometimes you got to let go. And that's, that's kind of what we, I guess, as a way of bringing it around about, we try to do drugs sometimes in order to just be able to, to let go of our obsessions and our, our manias and whatnot. And I, I personally, I'm just, I'm trying to like, just kind of do it on on my own with with less i don't like depending on stuff but i'm probably fooling myself because like i said i'm i'm addicted to thinking i'm addicted to all sorts of things i mean we're all addicted to the fucking internet and uh i mean i'm addicted to word for writing like i mean i i can write my first drafts if i had to go back to edit everything by hand i don't even know if i could write a, a book or a story you know what i mean so that's addiction whatever yeah the internet thing is is huge like i'm constantly you know trying to answer private messages or if i'm fucking just bored i'm like oh, i don't want to watch this and i click on my phone it's always right next to me and i'm just scrolling through stupid shit and and I'm, before i know i could be reading or do something you know constructive and you know on this on my phone or i when i try to write when i do write i try to keep my phone off to the side, like I try not to touch it, but then I'll get to a spot in the store. I'm like, all right, I'm stuck. Let, let me see what's going on on Facebook or Instagram. And I'll go on there and then it'll be 20 minutes later. And I'm like, shit, I got to go to work soon. And I don't have anything done. And, you know, because I'm on my phone, um, I definitely see the internet addiction with younger generations, with kids, you know, being on devices and tablets and cell phones. So that's, that's a very real thing. Yeah. And uh, it's a drug. It, depending on how you want to look at stuff, you know, everything is a drug depending on how you use it. And uh, so I want to, I want to ask you a question and you can feel free to decline this and we can edit it out if we need to, but let me preface it with the only other time I've asked this question. So it was, Oh, 15 years ago, I was in Oregon and this is honest truth. My friend kind of got us busted for weed. We were in the, like a little woodsy part sitting on a log and somehow a bike cop showed out of fucking nowhere. And, you know, I, I basically, I was like, this is, you know, I, but my friend acknowledged that it was his or whatever. And then, so we got a ticket, but in that town, you could take a diversion program. So you could go, I think it was just one class for a few hours because it was a college town. And if you got busted for weed, it would affect your federal funding for student loans. So they give everyone an out. And so I was like, I'll go, cool, I'll take this diversion class. And, you know, it was a, it was a bunch of propaganda and I, I made everyone annoyed because I just like kept running my mouth about like, well, that's not quite accurate, whatever. But <laughs> at one point I asked the teacher who was talking about how, how he used to be an alcoholic and, you know, he was, he was like, yeah, pot's not the worst thing in the world, but it's not great. And he would say stuff that wasn't quite true. But anyway, so I finally asked him, I was like, he mentioned his kid. Now he said, if you had to have your kid do one drug, 
which would it be? And he was like, oh, she would be high on life. I'd be like, bullshit, answer the question. And so he basically, I got the instructor to admit that he would have his daughter smoke pot in front of the class that we were all there because we got pop. So if you, if you, if your kid had to do a drug and don't obviously, you know, I'm not saying you would advocate for this or want that, but this is just the devil's there. It's like, you're going to do one, which is a kid. what drug would you have your kid do? Now, is this like a one-time thing or is this a, a spending a lifetime doing it? Or? A one-time thing, but of course, you know, anyone can get addicted from a time potentially. So it would just be a, a one-time thing. They would try it and, and who knows what would happen. Um, I don't know, because honestly, I, I don't even remember what it's like to, to be high. Like I've done it in many, many years. And I think if, I think if my kids were to get drunk, they would probably be like, I never want to do this again. So I'd probably just, cause I remember the first time, you know, when I was, probably the first time I got really drunk, I was like 18 years old drinking shitty beer in the woods with my friends. And I got so drunk and I puked and I was like, I'll never fucking drink again. And I you know, obviously I did, but I felt like complete and utter shit. And my dad knew it. So I was outside digging holes for no reason at like fucking seven o'clock in the morning. He's like, Oh, we got to do something. Uh, we're going to go dig holes. So um, I'd probably just say, you know what? Go get drunk. Yep. They'll probably be like, holy shit, this is terrible. I don't ever want to do this again. And hopefully it will take that away from them. And again, same thing with weed. Like, I don't think there'd be any issues with it. Um, but I don't really want them to be on any kind of mind altering substances. So if I had to pick one, I'd say just go get wasted. You're probably yeah. not going to like it. And hopefully it will steer you away from it or at least steer you into to moderation. That's and, and I think pretty much everything is with moderation. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And that that's a smart answer. That's a very fatherly answer. Cause I know I, that time I mentioned when I drank like a good part of a bottle of whiskey, I didn't touch whiskey again for like, I mean, probably seven or eight years until I went to Ireland oh, yeah. and I was drinking hot toddies with like a little bit of water and whiskey. Yeah. And I was, so that, but it was like eight years, just smelling that stuff would make me want to puke. So yeah. that's smart. That's a good, I haven't, I haven't drank one. Southern comfort in probably um god fucking 15 years because i puked like fucking reagan and the exorcist of uh, southern comfort i was drinking southern comfort straight out of a bottle and i was probably 21 maybe 22 and i was so drunk and i just projectile vomited and i, and I can't even smell that anymore and i'm 36 so i wouldn't even touch wow. that shit now so yeah that's yeah it left an impression that's smart yeah you and janice joplin with the southern comfort yeah no i'll yeah i'll pass on that well so to, to close out uh just two more things so what would you say is the best drug and what would you say is the worst drug and you know how, however whatever that means to you um see I, I don't know i mean i mean best drug for me like i don't i'm not a really a, a drug person so for me, I'd have to say alcohol because mm -hmm. I can use it in moderation. I use it, you know, very sparingly. I don't get to the point of really heavily intoxicated. I guess I'd say maybe a buzz once or twice a month, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I'd probably just say alcohol. I know most people are, they like THC and, and stuff like that. And that's fine. I just don't have enough of a background with it to where I would sit, not even advocate for it, but say that it's good enough for me. Uh, definitely, I would say the worst drug that I've seen just in the news and everything is, is opiates, your heroin, mm -hmm. fentanyl, mm -hmm. all that stuff, because 
you know, most other stuff you can experiment with and see, Hey, I like this. I don't like this. And you're probably going to be okay for the most part. I mean, I'm sure there's some, you know, psychedelics that might screw your brain up, you know, certain things that might mess you up here and there. But if you have, you fuck up with heroin or opiates, that's it. There's no coming back from it unless you have somebody there that can get you with uh, some Narcan or something. So I definitely think the worst one is those opioid derivatives. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. My dad is, he's retired from work, but he is a EMT firefighter. Um, and he has seen a lot of that stuff and there are people in my family. So yeah, I think, I think that's correct. But at the same time, when I had, you know, my tooth pulled out, whatever that stuff they gave me afterwards for pain was pretty miraculous. And I'm glad it existed, you know, so for the right circumstances, yay opiates. Right. But yeah, for everything else, not, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the one in that, in that book dreamland I talked about, that was one of the big things that they, he discussed was the, the pills and at these, these uh, doctors would pop up like fly by night things and they'd write just script for, 400 oxycontins and then they just if they get shut down and disappear people are getting addicted you know to pills now when they couldn't get their pills anymore they switched to heroin and that's where you had a lot of the issues but absolutely like you said opiates are great when they're used properly for surgery or for recovery it's just knowing that if, if you have an addictive personality and you like that feeling all the time you know an opiate might not be the best thing for you at least in, in my opinion i mean i'm definitely not a doctor so yeah they say yeah, I just remember coming back from getting a tooth pulled and being sitting in a car and just watching the rain smear down the windshield and being like, I could do this forever. And just like, that's why don't take it. Don't take it unless you need it. That's, yeah, that's got to be cautious. So, Daniel, you know, tell people what you're working on now and how people might find your work. Uh, so right now I just had another book come out, Only Psychos. That's through DT Publishing as well. Uh, with awesome Dawn and Tim Shea. They're really stand-up people to work for. And you know, I've had nothing, nothing but good things to say about them. Um, right now I'm currently finishing up my chat books that I did for Dead Sky Inc., which is an imprint of Death's Head Press. Those should be coming out, I don't know when, probably in the summer, but they're they're due shortly. So I've just wrapped them up, going through a couple edits. I'm currently finishing up my sequel to A Gift of Death, which is a vampire novella that I wrote for D&T. This book is called Black Hearts and Red Teeth. Um, hopefully that'll be out in December of this year. And I'm on all the major social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I fucking have a stupid TikTok, which is just, you know, it's, it's fun, but it's uh, I have one of them as well. If you want to see any of the stupid videos I do and email uh, Daniel J. Volpe Horror at gmail.com. Feel free to send me any emails. I also co-host a podcast, Written in Red, with Aaron Beauregard, Carver Pike, and Roland Bercy Jr. Uh, YouTube, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, all those major uh, podcast sites. So it's pretty much it. I'm pretty much everywhere. Excellent. So check out Daniel's writing and his dancing videos on TikTok. They're very, very explicit, some of them. So I've been shadow banned by TikTok. So uh, I will feature this sheet in my next video. (laughs) Glad to hear it. Well, thank you, Daniel, for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking a trip with me through Josh's Worst Nightmare, where I, Josh Schlossberg, survey the dark landscape of biological horror fiction 
presented by Denver Horror Collective. If you don't want to miss any of the great, and sometimes disturbing, weekly episodes I've got planned for you, be sure to subscribe to Josh's Worst Nightmare on a variety of podcast platforms. You can also sign up for Josh's Worst Nightmare e-newsletter at joshesworstnightmare.com, where I share a whole squirming mess of bio-horror, including my infamous haiku horror reviews and my latest dark scribblings. Speaking of which, if you haven't already picked up a copy of my cosmic biological folk horror novella, Moline, from D&T Publishing, you can find a copy of the paperback, hardcover, or ebook at Amazon, Godless.com, or joshesworstnightmare.com. Yours darkly, Josh Schlossberg.